Well, good evening, everyone. Please turn in the Gospel according to Mark, page 1168 of the Pew Bible. We're on Mark chapter 12. We're in a section where Jesus is facing various opposition from the Pharisees and from the Herodians. And um, we're looking at another episode um, of this opposition. So Mark chapter 12, and we're reading verses 13 to 17. Let's listen now to God's word. Then they sent to him some of the Pharisees and the Herodians to catch him in his words. And when they had come, they said to him, Teacher, we know that you are true and care about no one, for you do not regard the person of man, but teach the way of God in truth. Is it lawful to pay taxes to Caesar or not? Shall we pay or shall we not pay? But he, knowing their hypocrisy, said to them, Why do you test me? Bring me a denarius, that I may see it. And so they brought it. And he said to them, Whose image and inscription is this? And they said to him, Caesar's. And Jesus answered and said to them, Render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's, and to God the things that are God's. And they marveled at him. Well, amen. May God bless us the reading of his word. Well, about a month ago, the first minister of Scotland, Nicola Sturgeon, resigned. She was the leader for eight years, and she was the deputy leader for seven years prior to that. And so she's had a long career on the front line of Scottish politics. And many thought that in her leadership, she would achieve Scottish independence. But her resignation came suddenly. And many see it as down to a particular interview. Her party had just passed a new law on LGBT equal rights, some of the most progressive in the world. But this has led to a huge debacle as to the housing of trans women in prison. And the interviewer bluntly asked her if there is equality. Nicola Sturgeon, in a car crash interview, had to admit, in those circumstances, there could not be equal rights. Well, these are the interviews that journalists love when they expose the holes and the falsehoods of the leaders of our country. Well, in our passage today, we see Jesus facing a tough interview. He was asked a question that was expected to trap him and lead to his downfall. But instead, Jesus answers their question perfectly, and he puts it back on them so that they are the ones who have to submit, and they have to submit to him. So I want you to notice that you are to submit to earthly authorities, but you're also to submit to God's authority, for you're made in God's image. And this you do when you recognize that Jesus Christ is your king. So firstly, do not be surprised by hostility to the gospel. Verse 13. The gospel is a force that unites. We see that in the church. We see it in this church. We are made up of people from a variety of backgrounds, 
nationalities, job descriptions. We hold to different opinions on various matters. And yet, we are united. We are united in Christ. But Christ also brings another type of unity. He unites those in opposition to him. And today we see Christianity attacked from secular progressives and from the other extreme, from Islamists. They can unite in their attack even though they themselves are polar opposites. Well, how can there be this unity? Sinclair Ferguson says, the struggle for the survival of self-centered living will see to that. And so the gospel forces you to look from yourselves to a salvation that is despite yourselves. It is a call to deny your self-centered living and recognize your humility because of your sin. But it's the pride within us. It wants to credit our own achievements. It wants us to hold on to our selfishness. And so with this sinful pride, it will unite similar-minded people who too are against the gospel. Well, that struggle for self-centered living was evident by both the Pharisees and by the Herodians. They saw Jesus as a threat to their self-centered living. And so they unite in their hostility toward Jesus. And you couldn't get two groups more opposite, uniting in their opposition to Christ. The Pharisees, they were the conservative Jewish leaders. They followed the rules of the law, so much so that they added an extra layer of tradition just to ensure that they were keeping the law. They were respected by the people for their morality, for their observance of the law. And then at the other extreme, you have these Herodians. They were known to be liberal and worldly in their religious commitment. They were lawbreakers. They were willing to compromise if they saw an opportunity for personal gain. And that was seen in how they willingly worked with the Romans. And so these two groups unite because Jesus was a threat to them both. And this hostility was seen right at the beginning of Jesus' ministry. In Mark 3, after Jesus healed on the Sabbath, we read, Then the Pharisees went out, and they immediately plotted with the Herodians against him, how they might destroy him. They want rid of Jesus, and so we have considered, and we will consider many times, how they try to oppose Jesus. But we also read of how they are afraid of the people, and so they were prevented from doing so. So don't be surprised by hostility to the gospel from an unlikely alliance when their self-centered living is challenged. Well, secondly, please notice, beware words of flattery that are used to trap you. Beware words of flattery that are used to trap you. In Matthew's gospel, we read that the delegation that approached Jesus were actually disciples of the Herodians and the Pharisees. And so they were being strategic. They were sending in their younger man so Jesus would not suspect that this was a setup. In Luke's gospel, however, he labels them as spies, men going undercover to sabotage Jesus' ministry. And we read that these men begin by trying to flatter Jesus. They speak of Jesus being true, 
that he is a man of integrity, that he cares for no one. The ESV puts it that he is not swayed by people's appearances. In the original Greek, you do not look at people's faces. Well, you can tell a lot by what people think, by the expression on their face. But as these men rightly say, Jesus is not put off because, as they say, he doesn't regard the face or the person of man. Meaning he's not a people pleaser. He's not telling people what they want to hear. Instead, he tells people the truth, the way of God. And so Jesus is the very opposite of these Pharisees and Herodians. They were afraid of people. They were afraid of the crowd in case they lost the people's support. While Jesus was willing to speak the truth to the people, even if it hurt. While these men were paying Jesus all these compliments, they were not sincere. They're flattering him. This is their game plan to disarm him before they would then pounce on him. And Ferguson describes how they had forked tongues. For after saying these flattering words, they come out with this question. Is it right to pay taxes to Caesar or not? Now, this tax was like a pool tax. Everyone had to pay it, no matter their circumstances. It was hugely unpopular. Now, poll taxes continue to be unpopular. It was the poll tax that Margaret Thatcher tried to bring into the UK, which soon led to the end of her being the Prime Minister. But this particular tax that the Romans put on the Jews, well, it was a reminder to the people that their promised land was now under the dominion of this invading force. And that by paying the Romans, they knew that this would only help the Romans' cause and make their freedom more unlikely. And so these men, they brought this highly controversial issue to Jesus, thinking there is no way that Jesus can answer their question. They think this is their checkmate moment. For if Jesus says, yes, pay the tax, well, he would be siding with the Romans. He would be seen as a collaborator. He would lose all support from the Jews. And for some of the Jews, the zealots, who included some of Jesus' own disciples, they refused to pay the tax at all. And so this is a moment where he could lose all of his credibility with the crowds. But if Jesus said, no, do not pay the tax, He would then be accused of treason. The Romans would kill him. They would have no patience for someone who might cause a rebellion. The Romans had a fortress only 100 yards from the temple. And so they would quickly remove this rebel. Hughes writes, his antagonists waited with bated breath. The Pharisees were hoping for a yes, that they could herald to the nation. The Herodians equally were eager for a no that could be taken to the Romans bringing about Jesus' end. There was no way Jesus could escape. How delicious the prospect, how joyous their hatred. This was a trap, and Jesus knew it. And so he exposes their strategy, and he labels them as hypocrites. He calls them out. Why are you testing me? And this is the same language that Jesus received from Satan. He saw this as a satanic attack. Satan was using this delegation 
to thwart his mission on earth. And Satan works in the same way today. And so you need to see through the flattery of those who try to get you on side. And young people especially, listen to this. Beware of those who say kind words to you just so that they can manipulate you. When they they then turn on you and ask you an awkward question. And how you answer that question can be extremely costly. For in speaking the truth, they make you out to be a fool. And sadly, the pride within us will make us answer to get their approval rather than stand for the truth. So you are to be careful. Watch out for what could be traps that Satan used to bring you down. But even in these traps, be ready to speak the truth, no matter the costs involved. Well, thirdly, render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's. Well, you can imagine the crowd are listening attentively to what Jesus would say. And Jesus asked for a coin. And he asked whose image and whose inscription are on the coin. Well, on the coin was the image of Caesar. And the inscription, Tiberius Caesar, son of the divine Augustus. And on the other side of the coin was the inscription of chief priest. Now, this is troubling. A troubling inscription for a Jew who was committed to the worship of the one true God. But this is the amount to be paid by every person in the Roman Empire. And it went straight to the Roman authorities. And so Jesus says, render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's, meaning give to him what belongs to him. Hugh says, who could object to giving to Caesar things that are Caesar's? Even on our money, Stamped on it is the wording, United States of America. This legal tender, it belongs to the nation that we are living in. That's why it's illegal to burn or deface money. But it also means we are obligated to pay tax. We may not like where our tax money goes to. This past week, our government has bailed out banks, which had made very unwise decisions, business decisions, And while we may disagree with that, we still have a responsibility to submit to our government. Now, that doesn't mean we object. That doesn't mean we don't object to how our government spends its money. Thankfully, we do live in a nation that allows us to speak out. It allows us to openly criticize. But you are to render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's. Render means you are to give back. You are to give to the government, to the leadership, what is due to them. Wilmer says, Jesus is saying that the human government, even a bad government, has a claim on them. And this idea is repeated throughout the New Testament. Peter, in his letter of 1 Peter 2, verse 17, he writes, Honor all people, love the brotherhood, fear God, honor the king. And the king would have been one of these Roman emperors. And it's not that you are to respect him and honor him personally. These are often wicked men. But you can respect their seat of power. Paul 2 in Romans 13 speaks of this. Let every soul be subject to the governing authorities. For there is no authority except from God. And the authorities that exist are appointed by God. Therefore, whoever resists the authority resists the ordinance of God. 
And those who resist will bring judgment on themselves. And so we must realize that God recognizes governments, even governments that are anti-God. And that's because he is the one who has put them in power. He is the one who has established the institution of government. Now the Jews, they were hoping for a theocratic government where the religious leaders would be in charge. And so what Jesus was saying was radical, that God would have his people under governments that are far from perfect. But because God has put these governments in power, you too are to submit to them. And this is evident when you pay the tax that you owe them. Not only should you pay tax, but you should be faithfully praying for the leadership in your country. That's a real challenge for you, for me, to pray for our president, to pray for our vice president, to pray for our governor and our state and our senate and our congress, that they would rule in accordance to God's law, that they would be in submission to God. Now, while you are to submit to earthly leaders, we do do see occasions in the Bible of those who did not submit. There's Daniel, who would not heed to the decree to stop praying. There's Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, who they did not obey the government by not bowing down to the golden statue with everyone else. There's Peter and the other apostles. They would not stop preaching the gospel even though they were told to stop preaching by the Jewish authorities. And so government authority does have a limit. You are to render to Caesar only what belongs to Caesar. He therefore does not have a claim over who you worship. There does come a time to disobey the state when your loyalty to Christ is put in jeopardy. But when it comes to your own desires and likes, Well, you don't have that freedom. So, for example, you're driving down the road and there's a speed limit and you think, well, that speed limit's too slow and you want to go at a faster rate. You don't have the freedom to do that. Or you think you're paying too much tax and so you feel, well, I'll just play with my figures. No, you don't have the freedom to do that. You can only disobey the law of the land when it's contrary to the law of God. Otherwise, you are to render to Caesar what is Caesar's? Well, fourthly, render to God the things that are God's. This delegation might have thought they had cornered Jesus, but Jesus doesn't stop there. He then goes on to say, render to God the things that are God's. It's not one or the other. No, you are to render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's and to God the things that are God's. You are to do both. Well, it's very clear what belongs to Caesar. He stamps his image on it. Children, I I hope you never do this, but I'm sure it's not new or else I'll be in trouble. But some children or teenagers, they like to lick a cupcake or a donut to say, that's mine, everyone else, hands off. And by doing this, they are saying, well, this belongs to them. Well, how do we know what belongs to God? How has he demonstrated what is his? Well, like the image of Caesar on the coin, God has stamped his image on us, for we are made in his image. We read of this in Genesis 1, 27. So God created man in his own image. 
In the image of God, he created him, male and female, he created them. You and I, we belong to God. And so you have a responsibility to render to God the things that are God's. You do this by submitting your lives to him. You seek his honor. You seek his glory. And you are to do this in every aspect of your lives. And Paul speaks of this when he says in 1 Corinthians 10, 31, Therefore, whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. Every part of life is to be to God's glory. Even what you eat tomorrow at your breakfast or when you go out for dinner with your family at a restaurant, you are to do it all to the glory of God. The first question in the Shorter Catechism says the same thing. Man's chief end is to glorify God and enjoy him forever. That is your primary purpose in life. Yes, it's important to render to Caesar what belongs to Caesar, but the greater issue is rendering to God what belongs to God. His authority is greater. His demands are greater. You need to render unto God what belongs to him, meaning you need to be right with God. I always enjoy watching the UK's annual budget. It's quite a theatrical part of British politics. The budget is brought by the Chancellor of the Exchequer, who, before he delivers his speech, he stands outside his home, which is 11 Downing Street, and he'd hold up this red briefcase to the photographers, to the journalists. And in that briefcase would be the budget that he would bring before Parliament. And this would be his plan to make the British economy stronger, to bring prosperity to the people. And so he would tinker with the tax rates, with the benefit system, and how public money is spent. For British people, this is important. Now, coming to the States, this budget now means very little to me. I hardly even know it's happened because it no longer applies to my life. And in a sense, that is us before Caesar and before God. Yes, both are important, but one is of supreme importance with eternal ramifications. Now, these Herodians and these Pharisees were concerned about paying tax to Caesar. But an even greater concern should be them giving to God what he is due. Ferguson writes, The man who is devoted to God does not make the issue of his political freedom the number one priority in his life. He knows that he can serve God freely in his heart under the most oppressive of regimes. And while we may not be under a repressive regime like that of the Roman Empire, we are facing increasing hostility to Christianity, even from our own government. But even in this difficulty and in this fear, our primary concern is not our government. No, it is rendering to God the things that belong to him. And that should be living our whole lives to the glory of God. Scrivener puts it well when he writes, we belong to God and so are free in Christ to engage in the culture as the believer we are. Therefore, if Caesar asks me for the things that belong to him, I can smile, I can obey, because it's only going to be things, possessions, money, a coin with an image on it. That's okay, Caesar can have that. My identity is not in those things. My true identity is that I'm someone who is God's image. Christ has redeemed me, 
and I belong to him, body and soul. So happily I give to Caesar the things that are Caesar's, but only those things, knowing that through Christ I am unshakably one who belongs to God. Well, fifthly, recognize Christ as your king. Well, this takes us to Christ. For Jesus has been declaring himself to be God. He has made statements speaking of his divinity. He's performed miracles that only God can do. And so to render to God means to give back to Christ. It means submitting your lives to him. He's therefore telling these Pharisees, these Herodians that they haven't given God what he demands, for they have not submitted to him. It's no wonder the crowd are amazed. Jesus turned this whole situation around. This delegation thought that they had trapped Jesus, but Jesus is now forcing them to bow the knee before him. Would they do it now, or would they be forced to do it in judgment? And you too are to respond in submission to Christ. He is also your king. One of the distinctives of our church is that we recognize Christ as king. We have it in the banner behind me for Christ's crown and covenant. Christ is king over the church. Christ is king over our nation. Everything is under his dominion. Kuiper says, there is not one inch of human existence about which Jesus Christ does not cry, that is mine. Our church, our nation, has a responsibility to respond by submitting to King Jesus and obeying his law. And while it's important to consider what that might mean, we first must ask, what does it mean in my life? Too often we live with the idea that we can keep our Christian faith private, that it does not affect the rest of my life, that God is in charge on Sunday, but the rest of the week I can see fit. I live as I see fit. We may not say it as crudely as that, but often that is how we live our lives. No, Christ is your king. He is in charge of every aspect of your life. He is king over how you work. He is king over your family life. He is king over your hobbies. He's king over how you spend your money. He is king over your free time. You're not to blend in with the world. No, you're to be different. For Christ is your king. You are to bring everything under his dominion. But while Christ is your king, he is not a tyrant king who only demands. No, he is the king who gives you the grace and the strength to obey his law, to serve him. He is the king who provides for his subjects so that you're not lacking, but you're well supplied. We enjoy the benefits from our own government, whether it's peace and stability, whether it's safety and law enforcement. But these pale into insignificance compared to the benefits that we have in Christ. In him we have an eternal security. In him we have a peace that is beyond understanding. In him we have true contentment and we know of true justice. And so Christ is your king. 
You are to recognize him. So yes, you are to submit to earthly authorities, but you're also to submit to God's authority for you're made in God's image. And this you do when you recognize that Christ is your king. Amen. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we do thank you for government. We thank you for this institution you have created. And we pray for it. We pray for our leaders this evening. We pray for our president and our vice president. We pray for our governor here in Indiana. We pray for the Congress. And we pray that these men and these women, that they would bow the knee, that they would recognize you, that they would seek to rule in accordance with your law. But we pray more importantly that we would render to you the things that belong to you, that we would submit our lives to the kingship of Jesus Christ. And so we thank you for King Jesus. We thank you that he is the king who has saved us and who continues to provide for us, providing us strength and grace, enabling us to serve you. And so we continue to ask for your grace and strength to do that this week. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. please turn to Psalm 29b. Psalm 29b, this psalm commands us to ascribe to the Lord, to render to the Lord both great glory and might. And let's do that now as we praise God with these words, Psalm 29b. Let's praise him now. Rally to Gideon. And so this makes sense if you ha- you're seeing what God is doing is revealing Gideon as the new deliverer, the new judge. And here's the first person that seems to be recognizing that. Uh, Arthur Kundal commenting says, Joash's defense of his son was possibly the first step in his own spiritual rehabilitation. So this is one person coming around. Another commentator calls this sweet confirmation Uh, for Gideon, that he's on the right track. And I think there's really a profound lesson here for you, which is that obeying, doing that first thing that God wants you to do, even if your doing of it is flawed or fearful, is something God can use to inspire other people around you. Again, Matthew Henry uh, commenting on this says, it is good to appear for God when we are called to do it, though there be few or none to second us, because God can incline the hearts of those who stand by us from whom we little expect assistance. Let us do our duty and then trust God with our safety. And that is what he did. He did his duty. And here is suddenly out of nowhere, right, the one who, who runs the Baal altar. It's not an expected source of help. He steps up uh, for Gideon and for God at this point. And what we're seeing here is God beginning to use Gideon's obedience to inspire a whole generation uh, to respond in the way that they should. Now children, I want to make sure you're not missing uh, the point we're making here. And, and the point is, if, if you do your chores without being asked, if you uh, go out of your way to help others, if you obey your parents right away when they ask you to do something, you can have a profound influence on your other siblings or your friends, the other people who are around you. This is what it's telling us, that we can genuinely 
influence others, inspire others by our own obedience. And this is tremendously encouraging. Husbands and fathers, the way you love and sacrifice uh, for your wife and kids, the way you lead your family spiritually, this can inspire others who know you, uh, wives who respect their husbands, who are patient with their kids. They can inspire others, students who uh, balance their studies with their spiritual life, uh, workers who honor God in the way they work. There's tremendous opportunity for you to inspire people who are around you. Because as we see here, God can use your obedience to inspire others. And furthermore, we see here that God uses your obedience in small things to prepare you for obedience in more difficult circumstances. So in verse 32, Joash gives his son Gideon a new name, Jerubbaal, uh, which means the one who contends against Baal. It reminds us that the ultimate conflict in this story is between God and Baal. And Jerubbaal is going to fight for God against Baal. And the concept seems to be here that Gideon is being faithful in this first thing, this relatively little thing, knock down the altar in the middle of the night, kill a cow, not, nothing compared to what he's going to be asked to do. But by doing that, right, God is preparing his heart for doing something much, much more difficult in delivering the people. And this is an important concept in the Bible. Faithful in a little, faithful in much. And Jesus tells the parable of the ten minas, and he gives a mina. The, the master gives a mina to each of ten servants. And then he goes away, and the servants are to invest the mina. And he calls the first servant back, and he gives them ten. His, the, the master's mina has earned ten more. The second servant uh, comes, and he has five. The master's mina has earned five more. And then the third servant comes, and all he has is the mina that he hid away in a handkerchief because he was afraid of the master. And the master takes the one mina and gives it to the one who has ten. And the disciples say, exactly like the people in our world today say, that's not fair. He already has ten. And Jesus showing that he doesn't believe in equity as that's construed in our world today, says, for to you I say that to everyone who has will be given, and for him who does not have, even what he has will be taken away from him. And this is both a warning and an encouragement. It's an encouragement. A little obedience sets the stage for more obedience. That's the point. But it's also a warning. Failure to obey means loss of opportunities. Gideon was far from perfect, and yet God used his fearful act of obedience to prepare him for a greater act of obedience, which we will be reading about in the weeks to come. Now it's an encouragement to know that God can use even your fearful acts 
of obedience on his behalf. But we might still be left with the question, what if I fail even to do that first step? What if, I, what if I'm not doing well even at that? And this is why we remind ourselves that the judges aren't there really to be examples for us to follow. They are to point us to the perfect servant of the Lord, Jesus Christ. As one commentator puts it, Gideon, after he obeys, is as good as dead with the entire community committed to stoning him. And yet, he doesn't die. He's, in a sense, resurrected to new life with a new name as Jerubbaal, the one who contends with Baal. Gideon's pointing us to the Lord Jesus Christ, the only perfect servant of the Lord who served God in every detail. In the letter and in the spirit, he served God. And Jesus died not for his disobedience, he died for his obedience because he served God faithfully. That was why he was killed by the religious leaders and by the Romans. He died because of his obedience. But he came back to life victorious to lead his people on to victory. And that is exactly what's going to happen in Gideon's life as he will become the leader of his people as they go on to victory. And so because Jesus Christ, the greater Gideon obeyed for you and died for you, you can be forgiven when you fail even to take the first step. And God promises you grace through the Lord Jesus Christ that we might, by his strength, be people who take that first step more and more, who do what God puts right in front of us, trusting him to work out whatever he has in store for us coming later. If you know God, and our prayer is that uh, each one of you do know God, if you know him, he is going to call you to obey. You and I can give thanks that he uses even our feeble efforts to obey, to inspire others, and to prepare us for greater opportunities for service. Let's pray and we'll give him thanks for this. Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for the richness of your word, which shows us here a man uh, in many ways like us, with many failings, with fears, with hesitations, and yet, Lord, a man who did what you asked him to do. He did the first thing, and we thank you for that. We thank you that we see here how you use that to begin the process of delivering the nation. Lord, help us to learn uh, to trust in our Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who died because he was perfectly obedient to you and who rose again uh, to lead his people on. Help us, Lord, to have faith in Christ our Savior, that we would be forgiven of our failings for his, for his sake, and that we would be given grace and enabled, Lord, to do that thing that you have put in front of us. Lord, I pray for each one of us as we contemplate 
what it is you're calling us to do and in what way you would have us obey you and that you would help us to do that thing, trusting in you and encourage that you often use the obedience of your people to inspire others around and also that you use our obedience, even in small things, to help us be prepared for greater obedience. Lord, help us even in this week, we pray, to apply these things in our own lives. For we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. And now we'll sing our praise to the Lord from Psalm 119, Selection E. So if you turn there, uh, you can see a part of the psalmist's prayer uh, that God would help him to obey the Lord wholeheartedly. That I may keep your statutes, Lord, instruct me in their way. Yes, make me wise to keep your law. Wholehearted, I'll obey. That's our desire, that by his grace, we would do that thing that he's given us to do. Let's stand and sing our praise to him. <laughs> 